Welcome to Inspiration Rising. I'm your host, David Trotter, and we're here to inspire you to rise up in your life, love, and leadership. Well, you've heard the term eating your feelings, right? Boy, I can relate to that one. Well, how about hiking your feelings? That was a new one for me until I met Sydney Williams. After losing a number of friends in the skydiving community and being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, she set out on a 38-and-a-half-mile hike across Catalina Island in Southern California, and she soon discovered the healing power of nature and her own mind-body connection. Now, on a second hike, on the same trail, she began to process and heal from a decades-old sexual assault that she had kept hidden from those around her. Sydney is now the author of Hiking My Feelings, Stepping into the Healing Power of Nature, and she travels across the country empowering others to turn their pain into power. Now, this is a powerful conversation, but I also want to let you know that Sydney does share about her sexual assault, not in detail, but I do want to let you know if that's something that you would prefer not to listen to, and there is adult language used as well. Let's jump into my conversation with Sydney Williams. Well, Sydney, thanks so much for taking some time to hang with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hiking My Feelings, Stepping into the Healing Power of Nature. How would you describe this book to someone? Would you say it's like a memoir or self-help or a combination or something else? How would you describe it? My intention behind the book is that it's the memoir that doesn't leave you hanging. Um, I feel like so many people write memoirs and there's so many great lessons to learn, but they never take the extra step to pull those lessons out and teach you how you can integrate it into your own life. So I have done that. (laughs) So the front half of the book or the front, you know, majority of the book is the memoir. And then at the end is the prompts for reflection, which pulls out the key themes and lessons to help you integrate it into your own life. Yeah, I really, I felt that, you know, I was on the edge of my seat, you know, as I'm going through the book, one, you're an incredible writer. This is a self-published book and uh, I'm correct in that, right? I couldn't find a publisher on it and uh, just a beautiful cover, beautiful interior. You're an excellent writer and, or you had an excellent editor, one of the two or both. Um, So I really enjoyed um, getting, you know, I I felt like I was right there with you the entire time. And then I really did. It's uh, let's see, do you call it an epilogue as part of the, um, at the ending? Yeah, it is. An yeah, epilogue. So and the epilogues where you really yeah. unpack a lot of the your learnings, I guess I would say. And you even have a coloring page in the book. What the heck? You're out of control. <laughs> well, I figured. Well, I figured the material itself can be kind of heavy. Um, a large portion of the story revolves around connecting the dots between trauma and how it manifests in our minds and bodies. Which, right. as I discovered as we took this talk on the road last year. Um, it stirs up a lot of emotions in folks. So I wanted people to have the opportunity to read the story and just read it, like read the story as if you're reading a book, enjoy it or don't, (laughs) whatever. Um, But I wanted to give folks an opportunity to transition and get back in their bodies because when you feel these kinds of emotions as you're reading my story, because a lot of it's relatable because a lot of people have been through some really hard stuff. um, I just wanted to give people an opportunity to like bring it back to earth because I spent a lot of time up in my head uh, over a decade, you know, just in my mind, um, not really connected back to my body. So I wanted to give folks an opportunity to transition and then jump into the reflection points. All right. So the majority of the book chronicles two hikes that really deeply impacted your life, obviously. What led, help people understand what led to this first 
hike that you took and where you took it? Like, just take us there. Describe what you did and why you did it. Yeah. So to set it up, the first hike was in December, 2016. It was across Catalina Island, which is off the coast of Los Angeles, California. The trail itself is 38.5 miles and it was my first backpacking trip. I had never done anything like this before. Um, my first experience with backpacking was kind of an oopsie in that originally during that time period, we had planned to go up to Standing Rock to help with the water pipeline protests back in 2016. And as we were getting ready to coordinate our travel up there, the tribes were like, hey, we've got way too many people on the land, like pump the brakes. If you're not here, please like appreciate your intent, but like you're going to impact the land more than you're going to help us. So please stay home. Um, And I had that week off of work and I was like, okay, well, let's go do something outdoorsy. My husband's um, from New Hampshire. He's been backpacking, hiking, you know, his whole life. And we had done a couple day hikes here and there since we moved to Southern California. We'd been camping at Joshua Tree a couple times, but I'd never actually been backpacking. Um, And to like set the stage for what got me on the trail and what my mindset was in advance of that trip, I had just been through like two of the hardest years of my life. Mm. Um, My friend Chris, so 2014 was the year where everything started melting down. Um, that's where the book starts. Chapter one, I'm in my kitchen on the floor about to hear that my best, one of my best friends just committed suicide. It was just um, a brutal first part of the book. I got to tell you, I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm dying with you. Yeah. And you know, looking back, it's nice to be able to laugh about it because I've done so much work around the losses that year. But um, yeah, January kicked off with my friend, Chris, who was a U.S. Army veteran, former intelligence officer in the army. Um, he committed suicide. And later that year, my uncle Mike, who had previously beaten brain cancer, had the tumors come back and take his life. Um, Later that summer, one of my best friends, Adam, which a lot of people throw the word best friend around a lot. I get it. Um, I, he legit was like the little brother I never had. I don't want to have kids, but if I did, I'd want them to grow up to be like Adam. He was just really smart and curious and inquisitive. He went to um, Idaho for a base jumping trip and didn't come home from that trip. He died on a base jump. So 2014 was just terrible. Um, when I got back from Adam's memorial, I found out that my boss, who was also my skydiving coach, my mentor in the sport, um, he was the entire reason we moved from Chicago to Southern California was so I could train at his facility to be a world-class skydiver. Um, I found out that he was convicted of raping a 14-year-old girl. And I didn't know it at the time. And even when, even in the years that followed, I didn't realize why that was such a big trigger for me because I am a survivor of sexual assault. Um, I thought it was just like the icing on the cake, the straw that broke the camel's back after a really hard year. But looking back, like one of the people that I looked up to the most and trusted my life with, he signed my paychecks. Um, When I was, when I found out that he was convicted on two felony counts of these kinds of things with a minor, no less, um, it was just a big red alarm. I was like, get out, get out, get out, get out. I got to go. I got to go. So yeah, 2014 was rough. Just for, so people know, you were actually training people to skydive. You were an instructor and you were also an athlete in that sport training to be, I, I can't remember the language, you were training to be on the national team, I guess you would say, right? Yeah. So I wanted, I was down there. I was, um, I was a coach helping new skydivers who have already learned how to skydive by themselves. I was helping them stay in the sport and be safe and learn the skills that you need. Once you learn how to basically save your life and not kill other people in the sky, um, there is some skill progression that you can go through. So yeah, I was, I was a coach in the sport. Um, I was the director of events, PR and marketing at the drop zone where I was fully sponsored. And yeah, it was just, it, 
rocked me. Um, mm-hmm. I moved out there to be a world champion skydiver. And to get to the world championships, you have to be, you have to make the national team and then you represent the United States mm-hmm. um, as a skydiver. And that's, that was my goal. It's like the Olympics for skydiving. That's what I wanted. To that's do. amazing. Yeah. I was really intrigued by that early on in the book. And I've read that your husband has skydived over, he's got 8,000 dives, I guess you would say. Is that what you say? Yeah. I don't even know what to say. Yeah. He's got, it's crazy. Jumps. Yeah. <laughs> jumps. jumps. Hops. Yeah. He hops. He's got 8,000 yeah. hops. No, no, no. That, that is incredible. How many, di- yeah. or how many jumps do you have? Um, I retired at the end of 2014 and I had just under 700 jumps. Good Lord. That is amazing. Which is more than the average human and like 8,000 is impressive. Um, and to put that into perspective of like the progression of coaching and everything else, like the coach that I was working with and some of my other coaches have 20,000 skydives. So, um, they've been doing, they've spent at that point, you've spent years of your life in an aircraft (laughs) and jumping out of one. Yeah. I, I have, uh, I don't know if you'll be impressed by this, but I actually have zero jumps. Uh, so that's amazing. <laughs> Congratulations on preserving your life. <laughs> I also have zero lands, which means I'm always, I, I have just, I'm always yeah. on land. All right. Yeah. That's crazy. That's well, right. That's all part of the backstory. Um, and so you get on this hike with your husband and what starts to, it's 38.5 miles. I believe you said, mm-hmm. what you said, and you know, what's crazy. I was just, I've never been to Catalina Island. I live in Costa Mesa, California, right across from it. And my family and I just like right before Christmas, we had planned, we got our tickets to go over to Catalina. And that day it absolutely poured rain. And so we got our money back for our tickets. So I still haven't even been to Catalina. I haven't skydived. I haven't been to Catalina. I just feel like I'm way behind on this journey with you. But all right, so you get there, you begin the trip. What starts coming up in you? Why was this such a, a a phenomenal experience for you? Well, so in 2013, I was probably in the best shape of my life as a adult. You know, like sans being a child when you're just like naturally fit and metabolism's on your side and all that stuff. Um, 2013 was my first year competing and going to the national competition. Um, so I was in probably the best shape of my life. Then 2014 happened and everything melted down. Um, all I could do was eat Ben and Jerry's for breakfast and drink a bottle of wine to myself every night, just trying to numb the pain, um, of all of this loss. And when I got on the trail in advance of that trip, cause like I said, I'd never been backpacking before. Um, I went shopping for the clothes that one would want for a multi-day backpacking trip. And I went to go try on these clothes and I couldn't get the pants over my legs. I couldn't get the shirt to close. And I was like, okay, I know the last couple of years were rough, but dang, like, I don't even recognize the body I'm in. Um, And so what was coming up for me on the first trip was a lot of body stuff, but not in the way that it had come up in the past and not what I had expected. Um, In that dressing room, historically, when I go shopping, I'm kind of an asshole to myself. And I say unkind things about my body. Like, you know, if you skip that hot dog, (laughs) those pants might fit or whatever. Um just really judgy. But in that dressing room in December, 2016, for the first time, maybe ever in my life, I wasn't. Um, so I was just curious. I was like, Hey girl, like, how'd we get here? What's up with this body? And it was more curiosity than judgment. And that kind of set the stage for the stuff that I was processing on the first trip, which was largely like, okay, I don't recognize my body, but it can do amazing things. And that was a big shift for me, like to move from 
what does my body look like and how does that tie into my self-worth to what is my body capable of and where can it take me as a woman in particular was a humongous shift. So on that first trip, I realized, well, I remembered that I can do hard things. I was a division one athlete in college. I was on the women's rowing team at the university of Kansas. I've jumped out of planes almost 700 times, like pretty athletic kid growing up and into early adulthood. Um, and I just remembered that I could do hard things. Like I didn't recognize my body, but the body I didn't recognize took me almost all the way across Catalina Island. So I'm not mad about it. Like, wow, what a powerful vessel I have to move through this world. It was just a total shift on how I perceive myself, what I'm capable of, um, and my relationship with my body. That really started to um, improve on that first hike. Mm. And was that something that you were verbally processing with your husband as you're hiking, or are you just all in your head in this process? How did that play out? A little a little bit of both. Um, Barry was with me for both of these hikes. Um, he's intensely aware of my process, which involves a lot of crying. That is the easiest way for me to move stagnant energy out of my body is to just let it drain out of my face. Um, I used to resist that for forever. Um, I used to channel it in other ways and I would numb because that felt better than crying because apparently crying's not good for you in some social circles. Uh, <laughs> but once I got over that and I was like, this is just how I process. This is how I move energy. Cause once I get it out, I feel better. Um, it really turned things around for me. So Barry was there. Um, some of it was verbal. Like I was literally shouting at points like right foot, left foot to try to like keep myself going. Cause there were points on the first day on that first trip where I had to like literally physically pick up my leg and drag it up the mountain. Um, cause I had aggravated an injury that I had when I was rowing at the university of Kansas. And I was just dragging my leg up the mountain, shouting right foot, left foot to myself, sometimes out loud, sometimes in my head. And Barry would just turn around every while. He'd be like, you okay? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I'm proud of you. I'm like, I'm getting there. Like, I'm almost <laughs> proud of me too. Like I, I wasn't for a while, for a while. I would just be like, thank you. And then eventually towards the end of the trip, I was like, yeah, I'm proud of me too. You know? So you talk in the book about a shift from eating and drinking your feelings to hiking your feelings. What is yeah. that? What does that phrase hiking my feelings mean to you? And what, you know, how did that come up for you? Was that in the first trip, second trip? How, how did that come up for you? So hiking my feelings and the realization that I had shifted coping mechanisms came after my diabetes diagnosis. So after the first hike in 2016, nine months later, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, which was a major catalyst for change in my entire life. Um, I, th I firmly believe we all know how to take care of ourselves. We all know what we need to be eating. We all know that we should be moving our bodies. We all know that we should be processing emotions in a healthy way, but we have made it so darn easy to avoid feeling feelings that I had been since the assault, which is now 14 years ago. And especially since all my friends started dying, um, I'd been eating and drinking my feelings. And it was on a training hike for the Trans Catalina Trail for our second trip. This was four days after I quit the startup, which I had quit my big cushy agency job, six-figure salary, all that stuff to join my friend's startup after my diabetes diagnosis because the stress was just killing me. And the stress was primarily coming from my career. So I left corporate world to join my friend's startup. And then in that transition, I did not anticipate how much stress I would be under. Um, I knew that leaving corporate to go to startup life would not be a stress reducer in and of itself. But when I got diagnosed with diabetes, I realized that everything 
that I thought was a bragging point on my resume was actually teaching people how to numb and be sick. And I was a byproduct of the work I was doing. So I left the startup, which was rooted in women's empowerment and social justice, thinking that, yeah, it's going to be a stressful transition. But at least if I wake up every day knowing that I'm making the world a better place instead of teaching people how to be sick and numb, then maybe the stress will be worth it. That was cute too. So hiking my feelings came on this realization on this training hike after I had just quit two jobs in the span of five months. I had nothing else lined up. I was a breadwinner, currently not baking any bread. Like there was no, (laughs) there was no, like there was nothing in the oven. We had nothing else lined up. Like we don't have any savings to speak of. I just quit. It's like, I have to, I have to get my health under control. Like I can't keep living like this. So I was on the top of Stonewall Peak. It's a mountain in uh, Cuyamaca State Park outside of San Diego, California. And I realized at the summit, I was like, just super chill. And I had been for a minute. And I was like, historically, if I was in this position a year ago, two years ago, I would be freaking out. Why am I not doing that? And that's when I realized that thanks to diabetes, my normal coping mechanisms of eating and drinking my feelings, those had to go out the window. If I was going to be the best diabetes patient my doctor's ever seen, because I'm a people pleaser and I like getting gold stars, um, (laughs) then I couldn't keep eating breakfast like Ben and Jerry's for breakfast and I couldn't keep drinking wine to myself every night. So those were out and hiking had replaced that. And that's how Hiking My Feelings was born was just this realization that I had shifted coping mechanisms thanks to a diabetes diagnosis. And then it unfolded into everything you see today because it just did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things that you talk about in the book is this uh, sexual assault that happened. And, um, so that, that in the process of these two hikes, that a lot of that was uh, coming up for you and that, um, I found it, um, interesting that you had not told your husband about this assault and that, that, you know, that came up, you know, in the process, obviously this is a super sensitive subject, but it's a major part of the book. Um, can you take us to a bit of your process. You know what I mean? How, how the assault had impacted you. Um, and I'm not asking you to talk about the assault. I'm just asking about the, how that had impacted you over the years and how this process of hiking had somehow allowed that to come to the surface and allowed you to begin to talk about it with your husband. Can you take us through that a bit? Yeah. So um, the assault happened now 14 years ago. Um, it was with an acquaintance from work. So when that happened, I thought, um, I must've brought this upon myself. Maybe I asked for it since I know the guy is it rape. Um, because in my mind, 14 years ago, I had a very narrow definition of what sexual assault was. I thought if it didn't happen in an alley with a stranger who had a gun to my head, then it wasn't sexual assault. So I slut shamed myself into silence. I thought, Maybe I had been too flirty at work. Maybe I had led him on. Um, I was drinking the night before and gave an explicit no. I said, no, we are not going to have sex. I do not want to do that with you. I thought maybe like, maybe I was Cinderella and consent expired at midnight because I woke up and it was happening. Um, so after, immediately after it happened, I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell the girl whose house it happened at. I didn't call the cops. I didn't go to the hospital. I just went home, showered and swore I'd take it to the grave. I was like, you know, girls like us don't get raped. We're smarter than this. Like Mm. this can't, we will not talk about this ever because there is so much shame in uh, that you allowed this to happen to you. That was my mentality around it, that I allowed it to happen to me. Mm. And looking back now, I I just want to hug my younger self. I'm like, Oh girl, 
if you did not bring that upon yourself, like the only person whose fault that is, is the man who committed the crime. Like Mm -hmm. you had abs, you did not ask for it, whatever. Um, so for the immediate impacts right after the assault was it happened when I was in college. Um, I was on track to go to med school. I was in chemistry 101. I started failing the class because I was so distracted by the trauma. Um, I couldn't focus. I could not perform academically. And I dropped the class because I thought I was stupid and I didn't want it to drag down my GPA. And instead can, can of... I, can I interrupt making, you for just a second? Of course. The thing that um, I want people to hear, and this is a place of ignorance and learning for me. I'll just you know share with you. When you talk about that, I, I could not focus in the class because of the trauma. You know, there's a part of me Sydney, that inside that's going, wow, okay, I see that that's an incredibly traumatic event. I have not had something like that happen to me. And so yet I'm going, it's so traumatic that it's bleeding into the rest of your life and that you're not able to focus. Like that's hard. That's a bit hard. I can kind of understand it intellectually, but I want to make sure people get that, 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 that somehow it's not just like this one and done. You know what I mean? Like it's a capsulized thing. Like it's like what happened in the bedroom is left in the bedroom, you know, or wherever it it like, it like continued on. Like, how does that, how does that, like you're sitting in class. Are you, you know, how does that distract you? Help me, help me understand that more. For me, it was, um, flashbacks. It was replaying the situation over and over in my head to see where I fucked up and where I brought this violence upon myself was, was it something I was wearing? Was it something I said? Was it the way I looked at him when, cause we worked at a restaurant together. Was it the way I looked at him when I went to go pick up dishes for my tables? Like mm-hmm. I don't, it's, it was just, it was all consuming. And mm-hmm. at the same time, I did not feel safe to share that with anybody. So it was an incredibly lonely, painful solo mm-hmm. journey. Mm-hmm. Um, something else to note and, and for parents that are listening, for people who haven't experienced sexual assault or, don't know someone that they know of who's said that they've been through it. Um, because every 73 seconds in this country, somebody is being sexually assaulted. One in three women will experience sexual violence before they die. And one in six men will too. So it is prevalent. Not a lot of people talk about it for all the aforementioned reasons, but my behavior was so uncharacteristic of me Mm -hmm. leading up after the assault, because like leading up to the assault, I was a pretty good student. If I tried a little harder, I could have gotten all A's. School was too easy for me. I was bored. I didn't really, you know, put myself into it, but I was a traveling competitive cheerleader in high school. I was on the women's rowing team at the university of Kansas. Then my family moved to Florida. I took a year off for gap year so I could get in state tuition and not pay out of state tuition prices. Um, everything was on track. Like I was going to go to med school. I was going to be a head and neck surgeon. I was going to save lives. Like the doctor that saved my mom when my mom had cancer, when I was a senior in high school, like Mm. that was my plan. And I couldn't focus in school. I started making really questionable relationship decisions afterwards. Mm. Um, I also contracted an STD from my rapist. So when that happened and I was dating somebody after the assault, he thought that I was dirty and disgusting and deceitful for not telling him. I didn't know. I didn't know until I went to the doctor and had an abnormal pap smear that I had an STD. So there was just so much shame. And I mean, like I'm 21 at this point, um, just trying to like get through it. So yeah, my academic performance slid. 
Um, I started making questionable relationship choices. Like I dated a guy who forgot to mention that he was married. Whoopsie. Like that's a detail you just leave out. Um, and I, and like, if I was my parents back then looking at their daughter, like pre assault and post assault, I'd be like, what's up with our girl? Like what happened? But there was none of that. Like I was just let like nobody, I felt like nobody gave a shit. And granted, I hadn't told anybody and I didn't ask for help because I didn't know how and I didn't feel safe. But like, ultimately, it completely derailed my life. Like, would I, would I change anything? No, because the life that I'm living today is so beautiful. And mm-hmm. everything that I've been through is I like, I, I might not be healing people on a surgery table. Like I might not be in the OR cutting cancer out of you, but I'm a healer through and through. It's just being channeled in a different way now. Um, so yeah, I mean, after the assault, it was just academic performance first went down and then I switched my major when I was going through chem 101 and I couldn't even pass it. I was like, who the hell do you think you are, girl? Like if you are trying to go to med school, you need to get into organic chem. You need to get into physics and all these other, like these higher level science classes. Like, how do you think you're going to do that? Like, this is not your lane, pick a new one. And I just thought maybe I'd been faking it my whole life. And, or maybe I got lucky with school before. Like I, I was so blind to the fact that it was the trauma that was derailing Mm -hmm. every part of my life. Um, that I was, so at the time I was bartending, which is really convenient because it made getting drunk easy and free because that was how I numbed the pain. Um, I was bartending at the time, had a bunch of regulars at the steakhouse I was working at. And I was like, okay, um, what am I good at? Like, uh, I'm good at selling, upselling vodka and telling stories. Like, I guess I'll do PR and marketing. Like that's how I chose my life path was like Mm. in a state of unresolved trauma, largely influenced by alcohol because that was how I was numbing the pain and just like throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks because I was just so discombobulated from Mm. the path that I was on. It was like, it's like if you're in like a really nice, uh, you're in like a really nice Mercedes or something and you're just coasting on the highway and life is so cool. And then you just go off-roading and you're like, this car's not meant for this. Like that's my life felt like, like a train that went off the tracks. Um, so take so, us to say, take us to how that began to come up for you through this hiking experience and how you ultimately shared that with your husband. Yeah. So I think, um, the first hike on that first day when I was dragging my leg up the mountain, I've been to a bajillion different yoga classes and yoga instructors across the board have always said, you know, trauma is stored in the hips. Memory is stored in the hips. And, I was always like, Ooh, that sounds so woo woo. Like I never really like understood that until that hike when I was dragging my leg up the mountain and I was like, it was a hip flexor injury. So like I have the physical injury and the like emotional memories that are coming up. And I was like, Oh, I get it. Like I, I finally understood what they meant when they said trauma is stored in the hips, because as soon as I had to start dragging that leg up the mountain, I remembered the time that I was on the rowing team and when that happened. And I write about it in the book. I was like, what I wrote in the book is legit what happened on that mountain. Like I was dragging it and I was like, Oh, it was like, I was like thrust into a time traveling machine. And I was there. Like I was in the training room at the university of Kansas. I had just popped my hip flexor. Cause I just figured out how to actually drive with my ass on an ergonomic rowing machine. And I was just like, I get it. And so I started paying attention because I had been so disconnected from my body since the assault through all the trauma of losing 23 friends in four years. Like I was just so in my head and not in my body that when I remembered that rowing thing, I was like, 
oh, okay, I'm going to follow this memory. And so like I had been through um, some various like personal development, self-growth kinds of courses. And I like, I, I was familiar with the vocabulary. Like there's a lot of like woo-woo language and like spiritual language that like I understood the meaning of the words, but not how it landed with me. Mm-hmm. And that first trip was where I started to like, oh, I started to get it. So how there wasn't really any thought about the assault or anything like that on the first hike. But the summer between the first hike and the second hike in 2017, <clears throat> it was like early spring or late spring, early summer. I don't remember exactly when I told Barry, but um, we were on the couch watching The Bachelor of all things. Um, we kind of rage watch the show. It's how we learn how to be good humans because everything on that show, if you do the polar opposite in a relationship, <laughs> you'll find tremendous success. So like totally. we rage watch it <laughs> and we were doing that. And it, for anybody that doesn't watch the show in general, there's a lot of sitting on couches, like all these girls are competing for one man's attention. And so when they're not doing that, they're like sitting around talking and they shot one of these scenes where these girls were talking about something and she didn't explicitly say that she had been assaulted and she, and she hadn't talked about it. But like, as somebody who had been and hadn't talked about it, I read through the lines and I was like, Oh yeah. Cause she was talking about how this thing happened to her and she was so ashamed about it. And she never told anybody. And my husband paused it and he was like, is this a thing? Like, do women walk around with like this list of things that, you know, they don't talk about because they're so ashamed that it happened to them and they don't want to be judged for it. I was like, oh, baby, yes. Like, and I'm thinking like, I've got like this whole list. I was like, that guy, I forgot to mention he was married. Like he didn't, he thought that that was not important. Like there's all these things where like, I just don't talk about it because I don't want people to judge me that I would found myself in that situation or that it happened to me. Like I fancy myself somebody pretty smart and self-aware and I don't want to give up that facade. I'm a tough broad. Like I can handle myself. Um, and he was like, well, you know, if anything like that has ever happened to you, if you ever want to talk about it, like safe space, like I am here, I will do whatever I can to support you through it. Like, just so you know. And I was like, okay, cool. And I knew exactly what I wanted to tell him. I wanted to tell him about the assault because I hadn't told anybody. Um, and I wasn't ready then, but a couple of weeks later I was like, Hey, so babe, um, remember when we were watching the bachelor and you said, I could tell you anything. I've got something. And I told him and he held me and I cried and it was Mm. awful and awesome at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, Awful because once it came out of my mouth, then it was real. Um, For as long as I held that to myself, I thought if I didn't tell anybody, part of the reason I didn't tell anybody was because I didn't want to say it out loud because then that makes it more real. I figured like, if I keep this to myself, then like maybe there's a chance that I dreamt that it happened and that I didn't actually experience the most violent thing that can happen to the human body short of being murdered. Um, but I did, and I had been carrying that for, by myself for 11 years by the time I found the courage and felt safe enough to share it with somebody. And I'm really thankful that the person I felt safe enough to share it with was my husband and that he responded in such a positive way Mm -hmm. because as a survivor of sexual assault, the first words that come out of somebody's mouth after you tell them really determine your healing journey and what it's going to be like. Um, I knew instinctively that I could not share this with my parents after it happened. And by the time I actually told my father what happened, this was uh, summer of 2018, I told him about my assault for the first time. And he told me that my story was bullshit. And then I better come up with a new one because nobody's buying the one I'm telling. 
And if he had done that when I was 21 years old and daddy was still my best friend and he was the man who could do no wrong, right? Like he's the person I aspire to be like and live my life like and and I want to impress him at every possible opportunity because I'm the firstborn and I should be the best daughter. If he had said that to me when I was 21 and I came home after that happened, I don't know that I'd be doing this interview with you here today, honestly. Mm. That might have that might have been the thing that took me off this planet if yeah. I'm being totally truthful with you. Yeah. Yeah. So painful. How did um, that second hike help you process and move toward hiking your feelings? Well, I'd made the determine, or I made the discovery about like the shift in the coping mechanisms before the hike. So my thought going into the second hike was like, okay, at this point I've been diagnosed with diabetes. I've lost 60 pounds. I've done this hike at my heaviest, at my worst physical condition, like 2016, I rolled off the couch after two of the hardest years of my life and onto the trail, no prep, no training, no nothing. And I made it almost all the way across the Island. We didn't finish the first hike. So the second one, I was like, what would be possible if the hike itself wasn't the hard part? Because I know physically I can handle this at the worst condition I've ever been in. What is possible now that I am physically ready I'm 60 pounds lighter. I did break in my shoes this time. Um, what is available to me in this experience? I'm open for it. Like if there's anything, I there's some journal entries that I wrote before the second hike that I include in the book. And I, at one point I was just like, if there's anything else that I need to give up or get rid of or lose or cut ties with, like whatever it is, show me. God, universe, unicorns, whatever you believe in, like, I need to know, like I, there is nothing in my way. I am cracked all the way open. Whatever is holding me back from being my best self and bringing as much of my story to the world that can help people. Like, I just want, I just, I want to serve. Like, what is my purpose here? Show me. Um, and so on that second hike, it was just the first hike I say is the hardest thing I've ever done physically. That is still true to this day. Um, that second hike was the hardest thing I've ever done emotionally. I just went through Every possible thing that came up in my head, I followed it. I processed it. I let it go. I, when it came back, I worked through it again because it's never gone the first time. And by the end of it, I was just like, I had stripped away everything I'm not so I could start to figure out who I am and build that life. Because I, I for the longest time, had been living a life, A, in an unresolved trauma response from the assault. But the major through line of that whole thing was just like, I just want my parents to be proud of me. I just want them to love me. I want to, I want to do everything that they've ever said I could. I want to show them that I can. Um, so I spent a lot of time in my younger years, like performing this role of who I thought my parents wanted me to be, who I thought society needed me to be. And on that second hike, I just burned it down. Like that was my Phoenix journey, right? Like I just, I stripped away everything that I thought I believed everything I thought I cared about everything I thought I knew and reevaluated it. Like I react very, um, viscerally to being challenged or not believed because for 10 years, I thought if I opened my mouth about this, people wouldn't believe me. Hmm. So in realizing that that was how I was reacting to a lot of different situations, I was like, okay, so Sydney, who is healed and whole and worthy, like how does she show up in a situation? Is that how she would respond? No. Okay. Well, let's build like this new foundation from like where I operate in the world and how I show up and let the rest fill in the blanks. And that's kind of the summary of 
the adventures across the island on that second hike. It was sure massively emotional. Yeah, yeah. So you've written this book, Hiking My Feelings, and you're now on a book tour and you're speaking at all different locations. Um, what is the core message that you want people to walk away with? when, whether they read the book or they come to an event and they hear you speak, what's the core thing that you want them to know, feel, be, do? Tell me. I think the biggest core takeaway is like, A, you're not alone, right? Like there is so much of my story that I keep hearing from people who re- who've read it. Like they send me messages darn near every day where they're like, holy crap, I feel like you wrote the book of my life. And that's not because my journey is some unique thing that nobody's ever been through. In fact, it's the opposite. Like we are all walking around here holding our breath for whatever reason. Maybe like we're stressed out about work or family or kids or money or we're taking care of our parents as they get older or we're going through a divorce or we just got diagnosed with cancer. Like everybody's running around like holding their breath, like just trying to figure out like how to keep it all together but we're all doing that. So like for me, hiking feels like a big exhale. Like I can just let it out and be like, okay, cool. Like what, what's actually going on in the world. And for me, hiking feels like that. My husband feels like that. So if there's a takeaway, it's like, you're not alone. And when you find someone or something or a place that feels like you can just like lean all the way into that. So, I mean, I carry that stuff for myself by myself for so long. And there's like, there's my three takeaways, which like the first one is get help treat the wound. Cause like I said, like trauma is not just a scratch. We can't just put a bandaid on it. And I feel like that's been a major misstep in healthcare in general and just the human experience so far in all of the developments we've made, we still look at mental health is like this problem to be fixed and it like it's fixed by a pill and we don't get to the root of why these symptoms are manifesting. So the first thing's first, like get help, treat the wound. Because if I was sitting here on this chat with you doing this interview and I had my gut spilling out of my midsection, you would not be like, let's continue the interview. I would hope you'd be like, Hey, um, get off the screen, go to the hospital. But we don't do that with mental health. Like we, we tell people to suck it up. We tell them not to cry. Um, we have a really unrealistic expectation of what it means to return to work and like what a what kind of timeline you should be on following a traumatic event. Um, and for me, my trauma was sexual assault, but there's all the things we've already talked about. There's divorce, disease, gun violence. Like there's so many things that are traumatic. Sure. And there's this like air of competition because trauma is not a competition either. Like the worst thing that's happened to me, the worst thing I've survived and the worst thing you've survived may be completely different, but it's still the worst thing we've ever been through. And in our world, that's the most traumatic thing ever. And like, it's not a competition because we all process this differently. We're all born on different foundations with different resources from which to process and that can help us on our journey. Um, but the first one, like of the takeaways is like get help treat the wound because you can't just slap band-aid on trauma. The second that we start treating emotional trauma with the same tenacity and urgency we do physical trauma, I legit think we could have a completely different experience on this planet as humans. Because mm. we're real good at avoiding feeling feelings. I was an expert avoider of feeling the feelings. So that's a big one. Um, get outside. Like you don't have to go hike across an island. You don't have to go do one of these big like six month journeys from Canada to Mexico. You don't need to go free solo El Cap. Like 
it's not even hiking. Like I've said from the beginning, this is bigger than my story and it's bigger than hiking. The key thing is like, get the device out of your face and reconnect with yourself. Because for me, that had to happen in the backcountry. There was no Instagram. I wasn't scrolling through my cell phone. I wasn't even listening to music. Like there's healthy ways to cope. And then there's like socially acceptable ways to cope. And then there's like really unhealthy ways to cope. And like, I had, I had drowned myself in music and movies and just like numbing because that keeps you from hearing your own thoughts. It's like, Mm -hmm. I had to be in complete silence completely physically exhausting my body before I could actually hear the voices in my head and pay attention to what they were saying and then evaluate that for what it was instead of following every thought until the end of it. Because not ev- like we are not our thoughts. Like These are just things that we can observe. And I spent a lot of time reacting to everything that came through my head because mm-hmm. I didn't have a process to cope Sure, that was healthy. So for sure. me, it was hiking. And then whenever we have a chance and I believe we always have the choice is like choose love over fear because when I was in that dressing room the first time I was choosing love for myself over the fear of being fat that my mother and society and everybody else had instilled in me from a very young age like it was the worst thing I could do as a woman was to be fat that was how I was raised that's what I grew up believing and in that moment in that dressing room I didn't judge myself I wasn't nasty that was like the first little like switch that flipped that like turned me on the healing journey where it wasn't like, Oh girl, you're gross. It's like, Hey, like how, how'd we get here? Like let's investigate instead of just like judgment and hatred and diets and obsessive workouts. Like it was cool. And like when I got diagnosed with diabetes, in that case, I was choosing love for myself over the fear of what happens when you leave that disease untreated, like untreated diabetes is a monster disease, heart disease, stroke, kidney failure all kinds of things. Like in that case, I was like, no, I'm going to be the best diabetes patient my doctor's ever seen. I'm taking this as my opportunity versus a burden versus Mm -hmm. a death sentence. And then the last one, like when I get to share this story, whether it's a podcast or writing the book or doing a book tour, these speaking engagements, like every time I get to stand up or sit down and share this story, I'm choosing love for myself over the fear of what happens when a woman speaks her truth. Because especially when it comes to trauma conversations, unless you work in a healing modality, we don't really talk about this stuff. We're not really equipped to help each other through this. We're not even equipped to help ourselves through it. So whenever I get to share my story, I'm, I'm kind of like throwing double fingers up to every system that wants women to be small and quiet and to get along and not rock the boat because this is rocking the boat. Me sharing my story rocks the boat because we don't talk about this, especially not about sexual assault. Like this is not a welcome conversation. You've seen what happens in the media, on TV and in the workplace, like reporting in and of itself is a terrifying re-traumatizing event because nobody's trauma informed. Like the police don't know how to handle this. Mm -hmm. They don't like, there's a, there's a really great documentary. Um, not a documentary. It's like a docudrama based on a real story. It's on Netflix. It's called unbelievable. And it's about a young woman who reports a sexual assault and the police are like, are you sure that's how that happened? And then she doubts herself and she's like, okay, well, I'm not going to go through this again. So she's like, yeah, you know what? I lied. Sorry. My bad. Oopsies. And then as it turns out, the man who assaulted her was a serial rapist across multiple states and multiple jurisdictions. And they started having these women call in these things and they realized like she wasn't lying. 
Like this guy has been doing this around this region for years. And it's like, it's the most accurate representation of what it's like to be re-traumatized by telling the story. It's so good. It's really hard to get through the first couple episodes because you're like, especially if you're a survivor, because you're like, oh yeah, that's why I didn't talk about it. (laughs) Because it's so like, it's so real and true and honest. And it's just like, it's a lot. And then you get into it and you see like, there's one cop that cares and there's one cop that gets it. And that is the only thing it takes is one person to have, to believe you. So you can feel worthy of just sharing about this thing and then start to heal from it. Because like carrying this by myself for as long as I did, I wasn't able to heal until I allowed myself to admit that this happened to me Mm. and then move forward. Mm -hmm. Because for the longest time, I was just trying to not feel pain. That wasn't healing. I wasn't healing by any stretch. Like I write about this. I wrote the book. The hikes were incredible. Like that hike didn't solve all my problems. In fact, it launched me into what has been one of the hardest journeys of my life, which is healing from something that I had been avoiding for over a decade. There's a lot of unpacking that has to come with that. So um, I wouldn't say that like hiking is the end all be all for me, but it is the place where I can do the this work in the most authentic, unavoidable kind of way. Like mm-hmm. I can't run from my thoughts when I'm in the back country with right. nowhere else to go except from point right. to point to point to point. The book is called Hiking My Feelings, Stepping into the Healing Power of Nature. And people can find you, your book tour at hikingmyfeelings.com. Sydney, you are incredible. I mean, I I can see why this book and people are coming and wanting to hear you. You are, the word that comes to my mind is mesmerizing. You are like mesmerizing. I just like pulled in and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's like pulling me into this world. I can't get away. Like in a good way, you know, I just (laughs) feel, yeah, it's really magnetic, really powerful. So congratulations on the book and the tour and uh, just incredible. Do you have maybe one last thing that you want to share to people who are listening and maybe somebody who has experienced assault, but hasn't had, you know, the opportunity or, you know, hasn't wanted to share that. What would, what would you say to him or her? I would say that the only people that benefit from our silence are the criminals who perpetrate this violence against our bodies. Nobody else benefits. I did not benefit. My family did not benefit. My friends did not benefit. Now, I'm not saying you have to go have this huge revelatory outdoor experience and then go on a speaking tour around the United States and share your story with like all the people who will possibly listen. That might not be your journey, but at least have the conversation with yourself. Because for the longest time, I didn't even talk to myself about what happened. And through the sharing and hearing of other stories from other survivors, I realized, A, yeah, what happened to me was assault. And B, I'm not okay with this. Like, I don't want to feel like a victim. Like, as a survivor of a crime, you are a victim of the crime. But this shift from victim to survivor is hands down one of the most important mindset shifts of the healing journey. And perhaps probably where you should start. Like if you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened to me and you're blaming yourself and you're silencing yourself and you're going through all that. Try on the survivor hat for a minute because walking around being angry at the world that this happened to you and it's so unfair 
That's true. And it is. And until we have some radical policy changes in this country, until we have some radical accountability in this country for the people that are doing these crimes and not being held accountable, like until that happens, there's a lot that we have to carry by ourselves and for ourselves so we can heal. Because if we wait around for justice, it's never going to happen, honestly. We'll all be walking around here broken and hurt and angry. And every interaction that we have with people is coming from that place of unresolved trauma. Once we start healing, then we see every interaction I have with another human being is an opportunity for me to heal and for me to impart something that could possibly make their lives better. Because even if you're not a survivor of sexual assault, I guarantee you know somebody, even if they haven't told you that they have been through that. Mm-hmm. Sydney, thank you so much for your uh, authenticity in the book and, and just being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to my conversation with Sydney today. If you yourself have experienced sexual assault and need to speak with someone, I want to encourage you to reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at one 800 656 4673. That's 1-800-656-4673. And that number is in our show notes as well. Well, no matter what you're going through in life, may you recognize the connection between your mind and your body. May you find ways to experience the healing power of nature while getting the support and encouragement from your family and friends. And whatever pain you've walked through in the past, please know that it does not need to define your future.